Is life better on the other side? How can we help someone live well right up to the very last breath? Can near-death experiences really help us cherish our own mortality and those we love even more? And how do psychedelics comfort the terminally ill and dying? By the way, what the heck is a death cafe? You might be surprised. All this and more in the next episode of Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, this is Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. Today is a very special day because I have my friend Sue Brain from across the pond, as they say, over in, in the UK, the Southern UK area. And Sue is a survivor, a healer on so many levels. And she's actually fortunate to have had those experiences, at least that's my opinion, because it's given her extra strength and wisdom that we all can benefit and live more richly from. See, Sue actually had some near-death experiences and she'll go into those details. But what has actually impressed me more than anything is, well, you know, the Brits have that stiff upper lip and they say, let's get back at it. And in the US here, we say, let's press the restart button. But she's she's really gone beyond a higher level of understanding the whole process of death and dying, which is what our show is about. And I don't want to say I've been dying to have this conversation, <laughs> or no pun intended. She's an extraordinary friend and gift to the world. She's also an author of the book called The D Word, another book called Living Fully and Dying Consciously. Consciously nearing the end of life guide for relatives, friends of the dying, sex, meaning, and menopause. I'm not sure how that all works together. And also a wonderful book to help parents and grandparents with the whole process of teaching children, or at least explaining to them the the gentleness of end of life and loss and how to make that less frightening for them. So with that, Please, I'd love to welcome you, Sue. I have no other. It's like give it a round of applause. <laughs> is what I want to say. <laughs> but I'll, I'll I'll do this. Yay! <laughs> Yay for Sue. So welcome, okay. Sue. I'm I'm so thrilled that you're here with me. Yeah, me too. I mentioned in in the intro the death cafes, and that's not really the beginning of where this all started. I understand, mm. but the concept of death cafe when I first heard it, I thought, ew, ick. <laughs> I immediately thought of sort of Morticia Adams or or some <laughs> some black cloud talking to, to me about this stuff that we don't like to talk about versus love and joy in life. But I guess it's actually all included in that concept of death and dying. Yeah, certainly in my experience of running, I've oh gosh, I've run way over a hundred now, way over a hundred. And international and that thank you zoom for enabling that to happen because originally i used to just run them locally with people that live nearby but of course putting all them all on zoom means that people can come all, all over the world so that is, that's been a joy and and i think it's really enabled people who come to the zoom death cafes to realize there is no difference whether you're an American or you come from Singapore or, I don't know, India or from 
A lot of people come from the continent. We're all the same. And everybody's interested in the whole concept of what it means to to be mortal. What does that mean? And the death cafes give us a, a safe place to come and talk about end of life and our relationship with mortality in any way we want to. So the Death Cafe is really just a discussion about the words or the feelings or or fears of just discussing death and dying, ours or somebody else's. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Yes. I never know who's going to come or what's going to come up in the Death Cafe because it isn't a lead thing. I facilitate, I hold the space for people to experience what they need to experience. But it could be that someone's come because their baby's died and they've got nowhere to talk about it. It could be that they're sitting with somebody and you've, you, you know this experience yourself, you know, somebody who's dying of dementia. It could be somebody who's terrified of dying, but doesn't know where to take that fear. So it really, it just is an open forum, if you like, within a contained space for people to explore and share, chat together. And it's amazing what happens when even on Zoom, people meet as complete strangers and that they end up kind of exchanging email addresses or saying thank you so much in the chat box or sharing books or ideas together. And it's sort of like this collective sense of release. Oh my God, I can say what I really want to say without anyone shutting me up. A death cafe is, I guess I would say something that's even more intimate than a personal relationship with somebody that you live with could actually be because of it. The finality of, of ultimately what happens, I guess. Well, I think, you know, you meet at such a heart level so quickly. I mean, you know, all the labels are taken off. You drop the labels when you come and you come and show up as a person who at some point is going to die themselves and they're willing to accept that. That's the premise of the Death Cafe. And within that context, anything's up for grabs. So it's not a chatty, chitty, chatty stuff. It really isn't. It is just really leaping in there. And I always start the Death Cafe is just saying, why have you come? What's really important for you about what do you, do you want to talk about in this Death Cafe? And people meet at an incredibly profound level, absolutely from the off. And it's a two-hour model which I think works incredibly well. So we take time with it. Two hours is a wonderful time span just to settle in. And often people just don't want it to end. They just go, oh, please, can we carry on? It's interesting that you say that because I've only experienced one death cafe. You know, I'd like to find others, quite frankly, because everybody has a different perspective on it. However, I found the conversation in that one time to be more, I don't want to call it uplifting, but it really was uplifting than a group session that, I, well, it's a series that I went to on dealing with loss mm. and, and grief, which mm. uh, that conversation led by supposedly trained practitioners was so juvenile. In fact, mm. there was one gentleman who, who I chatted with on the way out. My husband was with me too, at the end, going to her car. And he was so angry. And he said, I'm not a child. I just mm. lost my wife. And these individuals, these psychologists are treating us like three-year-olds mm. where- mm. He unfortunately did not have the conversation at the death death cafe. It took a a weight off my heart. Now it it happened. We went to that before either my parents had passed, but it was a different experience where I actually felt kind of good. Surprisingly, surprisingly, I think it's because people meet each other with truth 
their absolute truth and honesty. And when you meet somebody at that level, just something else takes over. There's a sort of, I don't know, it's a really walking into the depth of the human condition and not being afraid of that and not having these labels, oh, I'm a something, therefore I know more than you, because we don't. Not when we're talking about death and dying. We may have lots of experience sitting beside the dying, but our relationship with our own mortality is absolutely unique to us. And we're learning as we walk through every day of our life how to do that better. In the Death Cafe, there were two women who were hospice nurses and or had been hospice nurses. And I would consider them, I'll call them unprofessionally whack jobs because... They both said, I can't wait to die. I was like, wait a second. I think I can wait, you know, because <laughs> quite frankly, you know, nobody has yeah. come back after, let's say, six or seven months and said, hey, you know, it's a cakewalk. Come join me. <laughs> I think that's a personal thing. In my own experience of working with the dying and talking to a lot of people who work with the dying. There seems to be a sort of reducing the fear of what it is like to die. As opposed to um, looking forward to whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, personally, I think it's going to be a terrific adventure. You know, that's me. And I think the most important thing is to own what it is for you. And it isn't for everybody to think like that. But a lot of people do and a lot of people don't. And that's another thing that the death cafes do just allows that person to say how it is for them without anyone trying to tell them what they should think or how they should think or to fix them. And to honor and respect that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And everybody has a different take on this. Let's take another step in a different direction, if you would. You have gone through at least one. Have you gone through two, I think, near-death experiences? Well, I was involved in a light aircraft crash. So yes, that definitely sharpened me up. Now, a light airplane (laughs) crash doesn't sound like anything big when you say light airplane, but when you're falling out of the sky from... It it wasn't much fun Yeah, coming down, I have to say. (laughs) It really wasn't. No, it wasn't. But Actually, I said goodbye to everybody because I thought I was going to die. And actually, most people who who are involved with light aircraft crashes do die because the planes are made basically out of balsa wood or the equivalent. So, yes. And for whatever reason, the great good, the great light, the great God, call it what you will, had other things in mind for me than dying in that crash. But it was a completely life-changing event because I saw my life for what it was and I was living a very hedonistic lifestyle in those days. And the word as I sat beside complete wreckage of the play was your life is a sham. And I knew in that moment I had to do something to change my life completely, or it would have been better to die in the crash. And I decided to take those steps to change. And it catapulted me onto the most incredibly powerful healing journey, which I'm still on, you know, this is 35 years later, but I'm so grateful for it. And out of that became, I was given a mystical vision where I was taken up to the light and uh, some people call it God, the love with spelt with a capital L. I don't know. I don't really have the words to so explain So you actually, it, you actually think, believe that you died during that process for a moment no, and saw the um, light no, or no? No, I no. don't believe I died, okay. but everything, everything disintegrated and I was no longer in my body, huh. but I was in this light, this amazing love, this in just beyond anything that I'd ever experienced 
in my physical life. And I've never experienced it again in my physical life. But this incredible, beautiful, just utter exception, accepting of who I was as a person. And and I had this presence that came and who was basically telepathically communicating with me and just said, look, you know, life is only experience. It's all it is. And it was like, oh, my God. And then I looked down and I, out of my hip, my left hip, I just saw this stream of yellow color and I knew it was my life my, that contained my life journey, my story. And I could dive into that color and swim around and take a look. But I was so captivated by this presence and I wanted to ask lots more questions, but it was just, she, the presence was just like, this is only an experience and there's something much more, but you need to, you know, that's it now. Bang. And I was back in my body going, what the hell was that? And I mourned and I still am mourning for the light. So I really get it. And when people talk about near-death experiences and they say they've seen the light, they've been in the light, I know what they're talking about. I know what they're saying. And it's the most beautiful comfort for my soul to know that that's where I will be going home to. So some people like the, the medical profession will say that's just the brain dealing without oxygen for a while, but you yeah. think that that's maybe a medical explanation, but maybe it's not a real explanation. People are very happy to think whatever they think about. That was my <laughs> experience. And I know what happened for me. And you, I talked to loads of people who have death, near-death experiences as well. And they know, they know what they see, they know what they feel, and nobody can ever take that away. They can say whatever they want. I know what happened for me. And I know where I was taken and what I was shown. And it's incredibly comforting and and I just know it's home. It's comforting to hear for those of us who are at the sides of somebody who is dying to yeah. think that we are losing somebody and you don't know where they're going because you haven't had that experience yourself. Yeah. And you, it's it's the fear of the unknown for us, for yeah. somebody that we love and the heaviness of that to be able to turn that around so that those of us who are left behind for lack of better description on that one, that may actually help the grieving process if it can, right? We, yes. we were selfishly or not, we're missing the, the person that we love and the fun and yeah. the joy and the laughter and even the hard times that we had together, but to hopefully think that they are going on to something that is bringing them great joy as well. Again, we don't know. You know, I did this. Just to figure this one out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research with Peter Fennick, who's a world leading expert on near death experiences and end of life experiences, and I was his end of life researcher. And we did a study into a five year retrospective study into end of life experiences and what they are. And love plays an incredibly powerful role as we begin to reach the end of our life in so many different ways. And it, it's sort of a sense of wanting to reconcile with our lives. That's really important. Love comes very present when somebody's sitting beside somebody who's dying. What I found really interesting is, is how many of the dying talk about that we call them as apparitions. They'll say, they'll suddenly look in the corner and say, oh, I can I don't know, I see great auntie Martha there, <laughs> you know, my, my dead dog from my child has come to take me away. And this sort of sense of now, whether those are subjective 
experiences or they actually are real. It doesn't matter. What matters is they are deeply and profoundly comforted by these visions. And in my own sister-in-law, with her mum who was dying, she was sitting beside her mum, and her mum said, oh, my sister's in the next room waiting for me, and she's making petticoats while she's waiting. Now, it didn't matter that Rosie couldn't see her mum. It didn't matter. Her mum was just so thrilled for her sister to be there waiting for her. And a lot of the dying talk about children, hearing children's voices, or some may say that they can see another world or they have a a foot in one world and a foot still in this, this reality. And they take time in their dying process to get used to coming out of their body. And I think all of this is incredibly helpful a lot more research is being done into these end-of-life experiences. You know, I, the experience that I had with with my dad, I came down as, as soon as we knew. I had been the, down a couple of weeks earlier, and then he had another incident. And I've shared that, you know, my dad was the, the kind that he wanted to fight like hell to the very end. Mm. And we fought till we couldn't fight anymore. And the doctor had called me and said, Nance, hospice is, is important now. So I signed those papers, which was extremely difficult to do because for me, it was a sign of giving up. It felt like it, but Mm. I I understand the conversation when I finally got, which was the next day, because this was happened at night down to Florida and walked into his, we got him home and walked into his room and stood there at the foot of his bed. He opened his eyes and he looked at me and said, Tracy. Now, Tracy was my middle sister who passed away when she was about three and a half years old. I was seven, and I had never heard my father talk about her at all, yet he had been having conversations with the aides about Tracy in the last (laughs) number of months, including one who had sadly and and suddenly lost her son, who was, I think, in his early 20s. And my father, according to the aide afterwards at his celebration of life, said, Nancy, you know, your dad really helped me because he helped me understand the loss of my son and how to deal with it. So that was a credible gift to have. But I I think about how he looked at me and said, Tracy, and I said, no, dad, it's Nance. And I regret saying that at this point in time, but I didn't know. However, mm. if I look back, I think, gosh, if that was true, what an incredible privilege mm. I had to be able to be that vision for him. Mm. And to me, that's, that's just looking back, that is just such a personal mm. gift that I had. Even if it lasted for a fleeting yeah, moment, yeah. I'll never know if it was true or not, right? But it's it's incredibly impactful and powerful when these moments happen. Mm. And because we're not trained to spot them or to be receptive to them, we can miss them or we don't know what's happening or we say, oh, oh you know, oh, he's just, you know, he's, he's he's got something going on in his brain. It isn't real. To them, it is. And I think we need to really look again at how we sit with the dying and how we need to open our hearts to really what's happening around the deathbed. And they teach us, the dying teach us about what it's like to die. And we don't get that. And he I played music really and, and told stories and did everything. Yeah. I, and dad loved Christmas. So I ran out to Michael's gift store. That's a plug for Michael's, not intentionally, but <laughs> <laughs> ran out because this was in September. And thank goodness that they sell all the Christmas stuff so early because I got ribbons and lights and we decorated yeah. his room for Christmas and soft little what a colored beautiful and, thing to and do. just made it look like Christmas for him yeah. and said, okay, 
say, if he's going to go out, he's going out with lights on. <laughs> I mean, what a gift. Yeah. And, you know, that's a beautiful thing to pass on to other people because we don't know what to do. And especially when you're sort of in an institution, it's really difficult and people are dying in hospital to know how to make it a sacred space for them to really to let go. So anything like this can help other people to to go well how can i make this special for them and for me as the as the witness of them closing the book on their life Hospitals and nobody are, will yeah. ever write that book again they can't it's it's done it's gone you have With one all of us. you only have one chance the hospitals are a whole different story yeah, on, on how that works and i had the I'll, I'll call it the privilege. It was to be sort of a voyeur on a certain situation. My dad was in the hospital. They had put a stent in or were going to. And diagonally across the hallway in this cardiac small unit, there was a gentleman, a younger gentleman, as I understood, that immediately heard code blue in the middle of the night mm. and knew what, knew what that was. And the amount of people that ran to help everything that was going on. And I just mm. watched behind a curtain. There was a nurse there that was upset with me and just closed the curtain. But I continued to peek because I was yeah. more fascinated with the response of the medical team, as hard as that was for them. And then he didn't make it. Yeah. The respect that they had for each other before they mm. told his, I don't know, with his girlfriend or his wife or whoever she was, the lights were turned off and they all stood silent. Nothing mm. moved. It was like the world had stopped for a minute or so there to watch them all. And for me, like I said, it was a gift to be able to have seen that and understood mm. what happens when something like that goes on. Not a TV drama, but in real life. And there yeah. was a, a nurse, a traveling nurse, who explained to me, he said, this is the first time I have seen that in probably 10 years where there's wow. been a situation. And then to see just by pure accident, not that I was looking for it, but how the medical team or the doctor gently told his, mm. his girlfriend or his wife and how they just had so much care for her heart and respect. It was, mm. it was amazing. It was amazing. As cold as the hospital can be. If anything yeah. was going to happen to a family member in a hospital, at least in that hospital. I knew that they would have handled it with kindness and gentleness. And I'm not sure that's the case of, of others. And I know that's not the case in, in many. It others. is changing. I mean, I can only talk about the UK. I mean, the culture is changing. And I think the death cafes have got a huge amount to, to answer for this, actually, because a lot of professional professionals can, come yeah. to death cafes, lots of nurses and death doulas and doctors and even GPs come. They want to know how to do this better. And I find that really fantastic. It's and not one taught. way of doing it. Hmm? Right. It's not taught in medical no. school. Right. No. So when no. my when my sister died, when she was three and a half and my mom told this story to me several times, she said when Tracy was dying, I called the doctor in panic, she said, and the doctor told her on the phone, I know Mrs. May, she's dying. What do you want me to do about it? Oh, yeah. So you can understand the anger that my mother, a parent had about the entire system in the process at the time. She was angry for a long, long period of time. And I now I know, I mean, I know why having now gone through it, thankfully, never a child. There was nothing. She, she had childhood leukemia before they could actually do anything about mm. that. But her fears and her knowledge that something was wrong from the beginning after she started to see some kind of symptoms that were ignored were, were validated, unfortunately, in a very hard and cruel way. 
that hopefully no parent ever has to deal with quite like that again. Well, there are some still horror stories happening, but it is changing. The culture is is definitely changing. And I really, really salute that. And there's a very exciting movement now happening that's coming out of the John Hopkins University in the States and also from Imperial College. And they're actually using psychedelics now to help people with cancer to release their fear of death. This Hmm. is very, very embryonic. I think it's going to be something that is going to be used mainstream, maybe not tomorrow, but certainly I would imagine in within 10 years or so. So this is before the the hospice where you're dealing with um, yeah. Ativan and, and other medications yeah. to relieve the anxiety. Yeah. It's to, just to relieve you... the anxiety and ela- enable them to have an out-of-body experience and whatever the way that happens to them, but very, mm. very, very carefully monitored. But there's some very exciting research coming out about this, very embryonic, obviously, and there's a long way to go. I can see a movement of opening up around this. We'll have to do a show be, on that one. Yeah, very um, exciting. And in fact, I, in my own podcast, I've just interviewed two, one's a palliative care nurse and one's a psychiatrist who's now who are now working with the whole concept of how to make, how to ease the end of life. And they are ready to go as soon as the law is, is passed, that they can actually start using psychedelics in a, as I said, in a very, very controlled respectful way. And one of them, the psychiatrist, is doing a lot of lobbying now. Very exciting, innovative, different way of working with end of life. Of course, I would imagine <clears throat> when when you know that there's nothing more that can be done at that point. And we never know when that final day is going to be, even when we're stage four or whatever else. But it brings up the conversation of the whole, like your book, which I love, the D word, talking about dying, which we don't talk about. Typically, I've shared in other conversations how, and I've even wrote a little blog about it, how my parents prepared me for their death since I was five. That's <laughs> my joke. But as the oldest child, and dad traveled a lot, and mom had a child that was ill and, and herself, mm. and then an infant that was literally just born, which is my younger sister, she needed to rely on somebody. And here I was, a five year old, not knowing, well, I learned how to dial 911 and take care of things if in case something happened. But my parents were unusual, I think, in that they were willing to talk about those conversations, probably because they were surrounded by it more than than any young family really is. So it became a discussion on, you know, what to do. Very clinical though. You know, it's what to do in case of an emergency, you'll be safe. Here you dial 911. If anything happens to us, you'll be going to friends who have a dude ranch in Arizona. Really? Can we try that? I was five. <laughs> I liked horses. And then, you know, what what would happen if, in fact, anything did happen to my parents? And we're all the, well, not at five, but later on, the attorneys, the accountants, the financial advisors, where all the files were. Anytime I visited my parents in Florida was, here's the files, here's where they are, you know, where everything is. And of course, my dad made duplicate copies, thank goodness, because I never have to make another copy again. <laughs> But still, the conversation is not easy for everybody. How do you start the conversation in a way that is not so final? Maybe it's probably not the right, you know, it's like fini, you know, it's like that's it. Poof. Is there a way to bridge that conversation? Yeah. I think, first of all, you have to go with the person where they are. If they don't want to talk about it, they do not want to talk about it. And I, I have a friend who's dying at the moment, and it's taken her a year even to talk about 
death and dying, to put mm. even the words. And I've just constantly stayed with her. And I've always said to her, look, if there's ever a time that you want to talk about anything, I'm here. And she went, oh, thanks. That's great. And she knows when she's ready, I will be there for her. But it's not for me to push that conversation. And I think it can be very difficult for those of us who want the conversation where the family going, we really want this conversation with this person and they're not going to go there. And you just keep offering that. If you ever want to talk about anything, I'm here. And then find support for yourself because to carry that burden of not being able to have the conversation is really tough. So do find somebody you trust you can talk to and just talk about the frustration and get the support that you need. But how frequently do people wait till a point in their lives where it's eminent, right? Yeah. Versus having the conversation early. You know, I know friends and I've heard people saying, look, we're trying to have this conversation with our parents and they don't want to talk about it. Well, you know, I get it. But quite frankly, it's, I think it's a, a bit of a gift. It's not a bit of it. It is a gift for a parent or somebody, if another family member to have that discussion mm-hmm. with somebody who they believe will still be around because we don't know when our time is mm-hmm. up so that they know what their wishes are. See, I, I had the gift that yeah. dad I knew wanted to fight till we couldn't fight anymore. And we fought as long as we could. And mom, mom was a whole nother story where yeah, I sure. knew that she had instructions that if she became, you know, quote unquote, a vegetable was her term, pull the plugs. She did not want to be kept on life support. So I understood that. And each time, although it was actually more difficult, I think with dad, because he did want to fight. And and mm. when we just couldn't, you know, there's, there's an expiration date on all of us. Mm. And that was probably more difficult. It was easier. It was never easy, but it was easier for mom because I knew the life that had happened as a result of a, a massive brain bleed and turning into a coma victim that, or just not waking up, probably not the best medical term, but that was it. I knew it was okay. And just to help her through that process. Well, it's a huge question because as I said, you cannot make somebody do something that they're not ready to do. And in my own experience of this friend of mine, she felt that making a will or setting up a power of attorney would be tempting fate. So I said, well, I've already oh, the, done the bad mine. juju, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bad yeah. juju. I've already done mine. My son's got it. My brother's got it. I, you know, my GP's got it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's there. And I said, I don't feel it's bad juju on me. I just feel relieved that I've done it. And that's why I left it. And finally, she's now getting to the point that she's willing to do it. But that's getting a little bit slightly late in the day. But at least she is beginning to take responsibility for what may happen. But you can't, you just can't force anybody. And I think the only thing you can do is take responsibility for yourself. I The rot stops with me as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows everything. So I can be an example to anyone I meet and to my family about it's okay to get well prepared at any time. And I'd love my son and my to do this too, because he's only, he's 42. But these days, you never know anything. But anyway, he knows he's got it all. He's got my stuff. And I'm hoping that rubs off on him. I know they've made a will, which is great. 
that's a really terrific step forward. And, and I think the younger generation are doing it better. And I think that's what we can do as baby boomers. We really can set an example by doing it ourselves and telling absolutely everybody that we've done it. Set the example for those yeah. around us and those that come after us. Yeah. Now, I have to bring something up because I your book, The Dying Word or The D Word, yeah, D-word. brought up the subject of violent death. Yeah. And that's something we don't think about until it happens to somebody that we know or yeah. some somebody that's very close to us. How do we handle that differently or do we handle that differently? Oh, well, the thing is with violent death, it's it's deeply traumatizing. And I think that for the person who's you, left behind, I mean, to the if, if you're dead, you're gone. I mean, the that's person it. Who's right? died had a, we don't you know, know how traumatic. We don't know. And I mean, one can only hope that when it's violent, it's quick on that level. And I know a lot of people who've had witnessed people dying in front of them in a like a friend of mine's husband drowned literally in front of her. Right. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't do anything about it. I know somebody who's a child, actually, the canoe turned over on top of him and he died in front of them. They couldn't do anything. I mean, total helplessness. Yeah. Trauma is about helplessness, hopelessness and horror. And all I can say to anybody who's who is experiencing that when they think about the person who's died violently is please go and get specialized trauma help because it helps reduce the traumatic symptoms, which is basically being on hyper alert, nightmares. I mean, there's a whole list of trauma symptoms that happens to us when we either witness it personally at ourselves or we hear about it or we actually aren't even involved in it, but we over-empathize with it. And I think mm. a lot of this is happening with the shootings, actually, at the moment in America, that people are over-empathizing with a lot of the shootings that happen because it's a horror story. It's a horror story that uh, certainly in America, we, we're having stabbings in England. We don't have so many guns here, but we have an awful lot of young people stabbing each other. And it <sighs> is traumatizing society because of that. So it is about just being completely aware of what is the impact it's happening on you and to find specialist help. It's a different type of grief. It's a shock to the system in many ways, whether you're personally involved in it in some way as an observer, as a parent, as a spouse, as a child of or sibling versus being part of the crowd. I think of probably the biggest example was 9-11, right? When yes. we, we all witnessed what had happened in those in those yeah. towers and around the world, we reacted. So then I know it's, I don't want to just cut this off wholly, yeah. but I'm going to do it right now just for the sake of the show. Okay. But there's that time where we don't know, we think that somebody's dying, but we're not sure and we're not willing to face it. And I had a very dear friend who, or gentleman who's become a good friend and, and we used to sit once a month and have lunch together and talk about things. His wife had passed away from Alzheimer's several years earlier at a fairly young age. And one day he said, Nancy, you seem to have everything buttoned up. Is there anything you're afraid of? And I thought, yeah, I'm fine. I'm a tough New Yorker, right? (laughs) And then I stopped and I listened to what his words said and they hit me really hard. And I said, yeah, I don't know what death looks like and I'm afraid of it. And to hear myself say that at the time shocked me. And then he gently said, would you like to know what it looks like? And I said, yes, because I didn't know. I think my own personal experience was I didn't want, if I didn't see it, it wasn't going to happen, right? 
And he went through what it looked like, physically looked like to his wife, what to expect, what to see, what to look for. Not, I mean, she had Alzheimer's or severe, you know, Alzheimer's where my dad didn't, my mom did, but it was, it was different. So that process to see the body and think of the body versus the soul Mm. was very different. How would Mm. you explain that? Maybe from a physical, but also from a soul perspective, what do you see? That when somebody's dying, the transition and, and oh, dying. not when it actually happens, but in that, that the yeah, time leading up a, to it. I think it's in my experience as sitting beside the dying, the soul or whatever this is, this spark of life is sure. absolutely present until the last breath. And then something happens, something leaves, something just transcends. And suddenly this body is just an empty envelope. Hmm. There is nobody home. And I'm so curious, you know, this, for me, I do believe that there is something else after the physical death. I, I do. It just, it's more than a belief. For me, it's a knowing, but that's me, by the way, for me. So, and something else happens to this, that incredible spark of life that was so present until that last breath. And it goes with the breath. It's and it's like we we come into life taking the breath and then we're alive. And we leave and with that. The breath and we leave with the breath. Interesting. And I find that absolutely totally magical. But that's the final, right? So yeah. I've I've had my cousin when my her mom, my aunt died, my mom's sister, she said, My my mom died in my arms, collapsed and died in my arms, and I saw her spirit. She says, I actually saw her leave her body look down at me and smile. And yes. and then I had another friend who said when his mom, when his dad died, he saw this sort of, it looked like heat wave leaving, yeah. almost leaving the body. And then when his mom died, he specifically looked for it. And he said, it was like this breath of smoke that seemed mm. to physically leave the body. And those, yeah. those are the only two conversations that I've had that I've heard this. I haven't dove into yeah. the conversation, but that's at the time of death. Do you see a transition of the soul, for lack of a better description, in the days leading up to that? I think we're pre- getting prepared. When we have the opportunity to have an extended death, when we go into a dying process, I think we have an opportunity to start separating out the ego from the soul. I do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the dying process is so... Just the the veil gets thin, doesn't it? I mean, when, right. when I'm sitting with somebody who's dying... There's just something that happens in the in the immediate vicinity of the dying person that you're you could become part of, and it's just yeah. I just describe it as the veil getting thin, and there's a sense of preparation, mm-hmm. getting ready because they ain't coming back again. They're no. going, and this this sense of just getting ready to go, which I find is just extraordinary and. And some people have a really difficult time letting go. And I think a lot of that is because they haven't actually necessarily made peace with themselves. And personally, I'm now almost 70 and I'm really taking the next part of my life really seriously now. I'm going to get ready, really well ready to, to for my time when it comes, because I want to be as clear as possible on my deathbed so that when it does come, I do it well. I don't want to feel distressed or 
anxiety ridden or anything like that. So I'm, yeah, I'm on my, I'm on my mission <laughs> to uh, really embrace my mortality that I have left so that when I get to my deathbed, that I can be absolutely 100% ready because I want to know what happens. I want to be utterly conscious in that moment of transition. Talk about a, a good death. And you know, I'm not ready to like sort of admit that that's going to happen, but I, I guess we are. So my feeling is personally, if I could just leave this earth knowing that Eh, she did a pretty good job. It doesn't have to be perfect because then that's it, ne- it never will be. The competition of death. Perfect. I mean, really? It's, that's just <laughs> that's too be- Wall Street for me. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have a perfect life because that's the whole point of being human is to just to be messy with being human and to pick yourself up again and dust yourself down and put it up to more experience and finding out who who are you? Who are you really without being told who you are or all the conditioning that we live? And just to be in that moment of transition and just go, do you know, I did a damn good job considering all. Yeah, not too, not too bad. You know, a few times yeah, I messed yeah. up for sure. I mean, we all do that. That's part of it. So I've got one last question for you is okay. when when we see somebody that we care about or may not even know that well that is struggling with taking care of somebody, mm. but not not ready to acknowledge that that person is really on their way out, right? And you see the caregiver suffering probably more than the person who's dealing with the actual end of their life more. How do you how do you help them come to a reality? Or is it your responsibility or should you just let it go to say, listen, Joe or Sally, maybe mom or dad or or, or whoever is just ready to go. Yeah. And it's it's okay. Yeah. Do you I have think that conversation? It's, it's just providing support in the in the way that it's okay for them. And the worst thing ever is trying to fix anybody. We all right. know what that feels like. And that is, oh, please go away. So just help them come to, to the conclusion themselves, basically. Yeah, or just support them or just say, look, if you need to talk about this, I'm here. Right. Just offer them the space. Maybe saying, look, you know, perhaps just find a, a, a find a way of having a day off and just go and get another perspective for yourself mm-hmm. while this is happening or supporting them doing that but again you can't make anybody do anything because a lot of people who are carers feel terribly guilty they're guilt-ridden for some reason about caring for this person that they couldn't save them right yeah, yeah. there was nothing yeah. they could do and that's a really difficult place so they need just lots and lots of love and support and i think that's the only thing we can offer you're only ready to let somebody in to help you when you're ready it's a very difficult time because we never want to lose somebody that we love. No. And even if we're not personally related to them, being a caregiver, whether you're a paid caregiver or family member who's doing this out of responsibility or love yeah. or appointment by the state, whatever it is, it's it's never an easy time because there's still an attachment in some way, shape or form. I think it's yeah. you can't you can't it's- let go. I think that's because of our culture and our relationship with death and dying. It, and thank goodness me, it's, it is transforming into something much mm-hmm. more, much more positive in a way. And I, again, I go back to the death cafes, providing that space for people to talk about things, helps them to sit beside the person who's dying and accept it in a much more 
robust way that you know that you can't save anybody the only person you can save is yourself <laughs> and the only person you can truly truly help is actually yourself mm-hmm. and how to, to provide a platform for people to to reach out it's actually it's, it's enabling people to reach out isn't it and stretching out that hand to them and just saying i'm here and by helping a, yourself, you actually help others because if you can exactly. set the example, right? You yeah, set the path yeah. and you show them that you're okay yeah. and that they will be okay. Yeah. And death is, we're all going to die. Every one of us on this planet, there's 7 billion of us, we're all going to die at some point. So, you know, death is always all around us. And it's just time to just allow that to to be the reality that you, one day your your story, your book, your story of your life will close just like everybody else's. And hopefully we'll, we've said that one footprint in the, on the earth that has made yeah. a difference to somebody else. I have one last little comment yeah. that I think is kind of funny to end on, a, on an uplifting <laughs> note, right? So the whole idea of cryogenics, freezing the body so you come back. (laughs) So, you know, these, it it may not be crazy, whatever, right? Sci-fi becomes a reality, whatever it is. If that's going to happen, I pity the fellow who, or the, or the woman who's had only their head frozen because I kind of want to have my whole body come back, not just my head. (laughs) And my, Walt Disney's, Walt Disney's had his head frozen. Well, then somebody met her make a pretty good looking body later on if the head <laughs> comes know. back, right? And you know, by that point, I probably want a, a really good facelift too. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. As long as you got my head, like make it look so tight and too. good and give me a like oh, a va va boom, a robotic body. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to come back. I'm done as me. You know, when my time is done, I'm done as Sue Brain. And I'm really happy to pass pass the baton on to another incarnation, whoever that is. But to do that well, to pass that baton on. Well, well. I always said I was gonna come back as a bluebird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but there's something about Who a bluebird. Knows? Yeah, my but husband it's... says bluebirds get eaten by snakes. And I said, Well, not this bluebird. Not this movie, but it can fly high. Absolutely. So thank you, Sue. It has been oh. just, it's, you are one of my, <laughs> my cherished souls on that oh. walks the earth with us. So thank you so much for being a guest. There will be more details about Sue in the show notes, including her own podcast, Death Cafe Links. We can provide that if you're interested in t- attending anything that yeah. she's done. And I know Sue will have you back because there's so much more to discuss on the <laughs> subject that I know we haven't even scratched the surface yeah. on in a very uplifting way. So thank you. It yeah. has been an oh, honor and a privilege. It's just been an absolute pleasure. My, my podcast is called Embracing Your Mortality. We'll put the show links in there. Take a deep breath because it's still a long ride ahead, right? <laughs> and every day counts. Thanks again, Sue. Bye. Bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.